You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Uh, hey, I'm JJ Whitehead, and I make people laugh for a living, mostly. Originally from Nova Scotia, Canada, comedian JJ Whitehead got his start doing stand up in Scotland and went on to become a veteran of the British comedy circuit. These days, he's living in LA and writing on The Jim Jeffries Show on Comedy Central. His new album, Live Before Lockdown, is available now on iTunes. Here's my chat with JJ Whitehead. Who are you and what do you make for a living? Oh, what do I create? Um, <laughs> that was that could so easily just be interpreted as how much money. I just want to know what you make. <laughs> and the show's I'm, over. So I'm JJ Whitehead. I'm a comedian and a writer. Um, and so I make uh, I make com- little comedy shows and I, and I perform live stand-up routines that, that I make myself. <laughs> so how'd you get started doing this? Uh, I started in another country. Uh, I am actually from Canada, but I started in Scotland um, in a comedy club, in a stand-up comedy club um, in Edinburgh, in Scotland. I was backpacking and uh, always wanted to try stand-up. And there I was in Scotland trying new things, discovering myself, shall we say. And I started doing comedy at the local comedy club, and I ended up not leaving Scotland and just... uh, falling in love with stand-up and then the writing and other opportunities come, come through that. I got to ask about the first time you got up though. Like you, you just did it on a whim. It wasn't a whim. It was something that I always wanted to do actually, but, but when the opportunity, yeah, you know, you carry around these passions or these desires, these things that you want to do, but you don't know when the opportunity is going to arise. And honestly, at that point in my life, I was whatever, 21. I knew I wanted to try stand-up, but for some reason, the Canadian in me thought, I have to move to Toronto someday. If I'm going to try stand-up, um, you know, in Toronto, that's the only way to do it, right, as a Canadian. And But there I was in Scotland, and I, it didn't even dawn on me, oh, yeah, there's a whole stand-up comedy culture here, and I'm doing my little, you know, hooray, find-yourself Canadian years. So, uh, <laughs> so why don't I go for this here? And you decided, I'm just walking around here with a, a tight 10 in my pocket and I'm going to get up and I'm just going to let her rip. Oh yeah. Well, you don't, you definitely don't think that you, uh, <laughs> I went into the, so I went to a show there. So I was staying at a hostel, uh, being the good backpacker I am, uh, staying in this hostel in Edinburgh. And, the, and one night, I think a bunch of us from the hostel decided, well, let's go to this comedy show. We got free tickets. So that's how I found the club in the first place. And it was this gorgeous, the stand comedy club was lovely. In Edinburgh, um, just a tiny comedy club in terms of all of them. It's probably like 120 seats at best. And uh, and then I, I couldn't believe it. And then they, they said at the end of the show, if you're interested in trying, come and say hi to us and we'll, and we'll see about getting you on stage. And so I came back like the next day and I signed up. They wanted you to do classes and stuff if you finished their eight-week program. But... To my recollection, I only did it for like two weeks and they gave me a five minutes on a Friday night. She was like, I think you can do this. I think you got, you got five minutes. So she did. They put me straight on to like open spot, you know, level and gave me five minutes on a Friday. And then, uh, and then, yeah, slowly that grows. That, and that's how it works. Like then four months later, they, they go, oh, we think you're good enough to do 10 now. You know, we'll graduate you from five to 10. And then when another comedy club hears that, like a comedy club in Glasgow, I believe they heard me and they said, I'll pay you 50, 50 pounds for your 10 minutes. So then all of a sudden you're going through with this new act to do your little 10 minutes. And then your original home club that you started at starts paying you for your 10s. 
and it sort of slowly spirals from there. Then eventually, you know, somebody gives you 20 on a Thursday and then another club will give you 20 on a whole weekend and they keep uh, building up. And, and before you know it, uh, you're, you're doing it every weekend at different clubs all around Britain. Were you working with a, a, like a bunch of friends? Were there other buddies that were doing this as well? I did. I started with another uh, comedian called Dougie Dunlop. He and, he and I, he's a Scottish comic. He and I moved to London together a couple years into our stand-up. So we were still really new, you know. Um, yeah, his name was Dougie Dunlop, so Scottish guy. I moved to London. And then when I was in London, our little group grew. We had like a four-bedroom house. And we slowly grew. We added a couple of Aussies. We had Steve Hughes and another guy called Jim Jeffries, who's, uh, you know, hopefully going to make it someday. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And so that's, so you, yeah, you form your little comedy group. You all live together. Yeah. Jim Jeffries, Steve Hughes, and myself, we moved to Manchester about four, about four years into our careers as well. We left London because we were now at the point where we thought we were getting paid, but we weren't higher. Uh, echelon comics so we were making a living but but our standard of living in london was still low and so we noticed it was cheaper to live in manchester so we made the decision to move to manchester so we could have a better standard of living uh, while the clubs kept growing and then eventually um eventually we did move back to london because we could afford uh that cost of living more what was going on that brought you that enabled you to go back was it just better bookings or higher profile yeah, I think like yeah, I mean there's a whole scale. Like there's lots of little independent clubs all over all over Britain. Um and I'm sure this must be the case everywhere, but you know, when you're at that level you're getting paid like eighty pounds a show. You know, let's say a hundred bucks a show and stuff. But the big clubs like comedy stores, like com- there's there's clubs that are bigger chains, like a comedy store or there's a club called Jonglers in Britain at the time. There's Glee Clubs, the club I started at, the stand, they all pay more you know like the caliber is a bit higher they'll pay like let's say 200 pounds which is probably you know close to 300 dollars or whatever for a set so once you got a lot of those once you're once you've been working enough and established yourself enough to be at those clubs then you're making a a higher you're making a higher income so you can afford a better standard of living or a more expensive standard of living so you move back to london you know it, yeah it just frames it that way i mean manchester's great though manchester is uh is in the middle of the country so you can get to every city no matter where you're working we actually loved living in manchester for playing the comedy circuit more than we loved living in london you know because you got you got all these cities of millions of people within an hour from each other they're not spread out like canada and america you can literally go from a city of three uh, three million in liverpool to a city of two million um, say Manchester and then down to Birmingham, which is another three and a half million or, you know, you're just, there's stand-up comedy clubs everywhere. So how did you develop your set? Like, how did you know you were any good and who was giving you feedback? Is this you and the buddies that you're living with? Uh, well, I mean, the great thing about stand-up is that the audience gives you immediate feedback of whether or not you're sucking. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think you write with your friends, you know, you joke around with your friends. Um, but mostly I think when you're a newer comic, you just have that motivation and with your friends, with your group of friends, you all share that interest. So you all want to be at the open mic nights. You'll all be at those clubs. Um, you know, in London in particular, there's a different club every night that had a new act night, you know, so all the fresh faced 
new wannabe comics would be, you know, that you'd be at the comedy cafe on a Wednesday night, you'd be at cosmic comedy in, in West London on a Tuesday night for the cosmic competition. You'd be at uh, the backyard on a Thursday night. Anyway, you're different, uh, different clubs where all the new faces are because they'll all put it's a, like, it's new, new comedy competition night or whatever. They'll put on all these new comics for three to four minutes at a time or whatever. Is it just a sign up thing? Like you show up at a certain time, you sign up and you do, or do you have to actually get booked? It depends on uh, the popularity of the new act competitions at the time. Like there was a, like it was a very popular when I was coming through. So you had to, you know, you had to book in about three weeks, maybe a month in advance to get a spot. But having like five of those, at least five really popular ones in London meant all these new comics were getting up on stage all the time. Do you win the night? Do you, is there, is there prizes? Is there money? Is that kind of the gist of it? Usually that's the, it's the same kind of thing. Like if you win, if it's in a set, if it's a club that you're doing these, say the, say the comedy cafe, they have this new act competition on a Wednesday night. If you win, they would probably offer you like 10 minutes on a Saturday or something. They'd probably go, okay, now you can graduate to that level. Let's see how you do on a Saturday. And if they're disappointed with you, then they ask you to go back into the competition. But if they like your 10 minutes, then they go, Hey, we might have you back in about three months to do another 10 minutes, you know, and you just keep, going and then hopefully you can leverage that you go hey the comedy cafe has me on 10 minutes how about you guys get me on 10 minutes you know so you're you're doing all of your own bookings at that point you're you're the one reaching out um i got signed in like 2000 so i got yeah so i got signed like when i moved down to london i got signed up by companies so that they started taking over a lot of my bookings i graduated quickly to um sets to full sets like 20 minutes um, you know, if, and all at the, at the smaller clubs, definitely like headlining the smaller clubs. And then all the big ones were just starting to get me in their rotation. You know, like the comedy store in London is the big, you know, that's the one that you want. And that's five headlining comics, but usually they're all quite experienced. There's not a lot of fluff coming out of them. So that's the upper echelon that you want to join. You want to get amongst that, those five comics that'll be doing that bill on the weekend at the comedy store. You know, and when you're newer, they'll give you a little spot in the middle to help you out. You know, just, you know, the soft spot. It seems like you had a lot of uh, positive response and early success in terms of getting into this uh, world and into the system. And, and, and you had a support network, you had your buddies around you, but this, this isn't easy. I mean, how did you stay motivated when you get 10 minutes at one place and then? Well, it was also all that I had. So that was one of the other advantages of starting in a different country because... Uh, because I would imagine if I had, so my original dream as a Canadian was like, someday I got to move to the big city of Toronto, you know, maybe Montreal, I don't know, but uh, someplace that I know has comp stand-up comedy because I'd like to try it. And in order to get all those things to align, I bet you I probably would have had a different job. Maybe I would have become, you know, I studied health professions, so maybe I would have worked, you know, in a, I don't know, or work for a sports team or something in their health department or whatever was my kind of the backup. It was a B dream. Yeah. But I didn't <laughs> want to tell everybody how bad I wanted to be a stand up comedian. But yeah, that was the, that was the guys. I studied at Dalhousie university. I took the health degree there and then I was like, okay, but I guess that's the thing. If you moved to Toronto, then I would have had, I would have had this stand up comedy thing, but it would have been definitely been a hobby. It probably would have been, become a, Second, definitely secondary to a job that I would have and maybe less realistic. Maybe it would have taken some of the passion out of it. So I think it was a huge advantage for me to just be a backpacking fuckwit Canadian 
uh, <laughs> you know, just, just happy to be, uh, you know, seeing the world and stuff like that. And then, and then all of a sudden this opportunity, or I, I considered it an opportunity of this stand-up comedy club just appearing before me. Like, this is what I, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you made it an opportunity. I mean, you took advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, it was absolutely all I did. So, Because that also meant, like, I was at that club every night, you know. So when my, form, my friends formed, my friends became less who was at the hostel with me, and they became who was at the, hanging out at the comedy club with me. And, that, and that's, yeah, that's how you're friendships evolve it's kind of cool when you're a young comic and you're like all right you guys love this as much as me so we are gonna just do this a lot this is gonna be great when you're looking for that five minutes that 10 minutes where are you finding inspiration i mean i know you look into your own life a lot for your material yeah i just wrote a piece this morning that i think is gonna be really funny I'm trying to remember what it was but uh <laughs> uh yeah i think well when you start off it's you're you're pretty naive so I, I have to admit i just did jokes about like pop stars and music and whatever my 21 year old you know faux frustration uh, was at the time but outside of that you just you know you just gotta notice when in a moment is awkward and go this is if if you put this into words it'll be hilarious if you can paint this story what exactly is happening now you definitely seem to gravitate to the awkward those strange moments, those awful, for anyone else, it would be embarrassing as hell. Yeah. I, yeah. I love a, I mean, I love a social story that I think everybody can relate to, you know, or give us some escapism. So yeah, I like, I like the storyteller comedy. That's the style that I fell in love with, you know, more than say shock comedy or the one-liners, you know, I love the pun guys you know, but I knew that was never going to be me. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm just thinking of, you have the bit about watching hockey in the hotel room. Yes. The awkward hotel story. It's awkward after awkward after awkward. Yeah. But it, you, as you're saying, it's, it's not, it's not dropping a joke and dropping a joke and puns and things. It's yeah, like, not you know, a, it's a build as a build and it, yeah, it, a nice payoff. payoff. Yeah. Yeah. A payoff that I actually, I always tell people is I never thought that would be a payoff. Uh, the way the piece was actually written, like the way the whole story is written, that was not, that was just a throwaway line one night and people laughed. And I swear, I still don't understand why that is a climactic laugh when all these other ones, that happens. <laughs> I had all these other ideas for, for how to, you know, how to put a button on this, on this story. But, uh, but it was the one that works is not the one I thought would. To me, it's that relatability, right? Like it's that horror everybody feels inside is, is when that last moment could happen to them. At least if something embarrassing happens and nobody really knows about it and you control that story about how you're going to tell them, people can get behind that. Oh, exactly. When you know someone else is telling their version of the story too, you're like, fuck. Oh. <laughs> yeah. is, there any, is there any situations where you find yourself without ideas and, and doubting you'll ever have any good ideas? But yeah, all the time. I think, I think, that's, <laughs> I think everybody has doubt all the time. I can think of all kinds of different um reasons i mean sometimes when you like i've just i'm releasing a new album uh this week and sometimes that that gap that comes between uh finishing something and kind of knowing what you want to do next but it, but you haven't started doing it yet or like 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 i said like my comedy like because i'm releasing an album i'm trying to find new ideas like where's my new like like a hotel story or whatever, mm-hmm. and so you so you do have that little bit of doubt of like, well, maybe I won't find one, or maybe I maybe can't, maybe that's it, maybe that was the best I that's, could do. I'm done. I've peaked. So there is a little vacuum sometimes after you after you finish something. There's a little vacuum, and then uh, 
And, you know, then the artistic process has highs and lows. Well, so what do you do to kind of confront this and, and, you know, hopefully conquer it? Uh, what, like things like writer's block or trying to think of where, what you want to create? Yeah, like, I mean, if you're waiting for that idea. Yeah, you just have to get your mind off of things. So, you know, sometimes you're just locked in too much. I like, uh, but I live in Los Angeles, so we're not far. I got my mountain bike is my main, my main mode of transportation in Los Angeles, which is uh, crazy. But yeah, you find that as soon as you, as soon as you tend to, you know, I got a gym membership as well. Sometimes something just comes to me sitting in the steam room after I've, I've sat in front of my computer and I've tried to work something out and I can't get to it. And it's, and then uh, it'll be so simple if you just can find a place where you can stop, change change venue, get your ass in the steam room, and wait for it to come to you. So ultimately, what are you hoping to achieve? Is there a is there a pinnacle you're trying to reach? Uh, world peace. <laughs> so I, I, I want nothing short of world peace. Will it happen because of this new record? Do kids call it records anymore? What? Yeah, they, you can call them a record. I call them. It's still recorded. It's a record. I call, I call it an album. An album. You know, that's equally album. useless. Yeah, the <laughs> record. It's yeah. It's a it's a body of work. You know. What's so, your new uh, body of work? It's called it's called Live Before Lockdown, um, and it's a series of sets that I've done in front of different audiences around the world in the last few years. Um, and uh, I think it's because it's the ideal way to get an album together in quarantine. You go, oh, I've got that. Got that set from Sweden that I'd love to release, and and then Boston was good. Calgary, we got some we got some stuff from London, Sydney, um, and Glasgow. I think that might be that. That's probably almost all of them. I might have missed one other, but yeah, and we just pieced all the all of them together. The magic um, of editing. So that's a, so it's fun. Well, I mean, we didn't edit them together. We just put these these body these uh, sets in front of these audiences together on the album. It'd be really weird if it was just edited together. If I'm just talking to a Swedish a Swedish audience, and then all of a sudden I'm <laughs> making fun of the Red Sox. Yeah, cut it, cut it by joke, cut it by line. So, yeah. is this album a project uh, that you started during this whole lockdown time? Yeah, it was. I mean, that's this is all a basis of. So I've got like some Zoom recorders. Um, I got like uh, yeah, two Zoom recorders, one of the big ones, and I've just been traveling with them now. I was actually using it mostly to uh, work on my show, like to develop my Edinburgh show, for example, when I just I just, just performed at the Edinburgh Festival, so we recorded all those shows as well. And I was intending to, to record the album, so I'm kind of, was using it to workshop ideas to see what was going right with some jokes. But in the end, because I was supposed to be in Manila right now, I was going to do a, a tour of Asia, and that's where I was going to get the last recording and hopefully do like a live from Kuala Lumpur or something. That's what I was aiming for. But all of that uh, opportunity went away. And so as I was talking with my producer, it was Robin, uh, who you know, Robin Collins, and, uh, and, and we just dreamt up this idea, like, well, why don't, we've got all these recordings now. Why don't, since we can't go anywhere and stand-up comedy may never exist again, why, why don't we create a body of work out of all these sets that we had? So I forced him to listen to my voice. For whatever that was, a hundred probably a hundred hours. I think that's fair. You had to listen to his voice, I'm sure. So there you go. I'm glad you made the trade sound fair. Thank so you. I just I feel like poor, poor fella, <laughs> poor, poor, poor fella. So he listened all the hours and pulled out his favorite routines, and boom, we've thrown it together on a 
on an out on a piece of work <laughs> on uh, a body of work on a body of it's become a body of work. I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. You said you're working with Robin, who's your producer. You've got management. What do they do for you? Like, what does a manager actually do for you? Um, I think regardless of everybody's titles in the business, sometimes because sometimes I I blur the lines between manager and agent. But I always think if they're taking that 10% or whatever, what they really do is they're like uh they're like that support system that they're saying your name where you don't have to, kind of thing. They're so so they're spreading the word, they're on your side, they're kind of another because you can't expect them to do everything for you. You have to have some initiative and and do do things yourself, pursue projects yourself, do all of that. There are another, what is it, string to your bow? Is that the saying? Arrow, there are another arrow in your quiver. So that's what they do. Like, I know that my manager's out there trying to find opportunities for me, sending me emails every now and then, like, oh, hey, there's this thing that's happening here, or getting me a meeting with somebody. So they just they do stuff like that that, uh, that helps you you know, have a broader reach in your career. But you have to do it. Yeah, you have to remember that they, for the most part, everybody involved in your career works for you. So you can't, like, even if even if you say say you're a band that signs a record deal, you don't go in there and go, oh, great, we signed a record deal, we work for them now. You go, great, we signed a record deal, let's, let's, let's make some opportunities and put these guys to work. That's the way you've got to think about it because, you know, because everybody's... Uh, Everybody's not you, so you've got got to do you so that everybody sees what you want to do. Well, and I think a lot of artists, no matter what the medium, they're so focused on making the art, whatever it is, the comedy, making the painting, making the thing, that they they think that's their sole job and that anybody else that signs on for a piece, that's their job. You go get me this job. You go get me into that gallery. You go get me into that on that tour. And yeah. to a certain extent, that's the, the clearest division, you know, as, as a lot of people would expect it to be. But the reality is that, you know, the artist is the fire that, that is propelling this thing. They're the, they're, you're the gas, ultimately, in the vehicle. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's lots of, lots of metaphors I've used. <laughs> yeah, we're the middleman. We're the middleman of our own product. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I guess we, we're, yeah, the artist does the creating and, uh, and you always need connections and opportunities that are given you by by people who have different experiences i mean that's got to be another benefit to me having a manager anyway because like i've only lived here in los angeles for like five four or five years uh and uh you know after living in britain for 15 so i know the british scene i just did a british tour last year and i didn't need my los angeles manager to help me with that but here in los angeles i haven't been here for long so he'll He's been here since whatever, since the 80s. So I think, so he'll probably have his ear to the ground for certain things. When you came over about five years ago, you came over, is it with Jim to work on his show getting going? Uh, no, we were, so we were flatmates. We were, yeah, we were like roommates in uh, Manchester, but I say move, Jim's probably lived here for about 11 years. He moved over, um, yeah, like, yeah, I'd say maybe 11 years, maybe it was 2010. Uh, uh, so yes, yeah, so I, I was still in London. We were just, we lived down the street from each other in London at that point. We each had separate, uh, one bedrooms, but on the same, in the same little neighborhood. Um, so yeah, cause I think, yeah, whatever you, you know, we had moved from Manchester back to London, 
but maybe I went somewhere else first or something, I think. And we all just got our own little places in London. Or maybe we were just mature men by now. We were, we were <laughs> mature men with our own lives. He didn't need to live so together. We all wanted to have our own little place. We had girlfriends. And we had, you know. <laughs> maybe, maybe we tried to grow up for that, that brief period. And then uh, and then Jim uh, you know, got a phone call from from Dr. Hollywood. <laughs> and he gave you a buzz, like when it was time to get writing on, on his show, he gave you a call and said, you know, I want this guy. And uh, no, not at all. I mean, like I said, the we- the wheels were, you had to make these, you have to make these decisions so that you can be ready for an opportunity. You don't make these decisions because you get offered an opportunity. Um, and that's a really important thing to always remember. Cause like I said, so he moved, I'm going to say 2009 now, I think, cause he moved, Felt like he was gone for a long time. And I was talking to him in 2012. Um, we were just having this conversation. And he said, hey, why don't you think about coming over? And then I and I said, yeah, maybe that's a good idea. So then I had to get all the paperwork going. And whenever my approval came through, maybe it was like 2014 or whatever, you know. And then I come over. I think I officially lived here 2016. Um, so you kind of had to do all those things. And then finally, and the show happened in late uh 2017 i think or early 2017 so i was just lucky you know he didn't make me any promises or anything i was just lucky that i did all that work to put myself in place when all of a sudden my friend had that show and and i was able to interview it interview for it and you know do all the you know do all all the packets and stuff you know all the writing the writing examinations that you gotta do and and off we went so yeah so, I mean, I'm sure it must happen for some people the other way. Like, you must have, uh, like, great friends who live in different countries who, who go, I want you, uh, I'll sponsor your visa. So that's just it. You can get a sponsored visa. Um, I did not have a sponsored visa. Yeah, you were doing your own work. Yeah, you can't do it either way. I think a lot of people get the sponsorship visas, um, which is fantastic as well. I mean, that must mean that you have a corporation or whatever looking out for you right away, like, you get a Disney sponsorship or something, you'll probably be on a, an ABC show quickly. But you can do it independently. I just got my own lawyer and I got my own, just had to show my own body of work and eventually got my got my passport. Yeah, the lawyers will be great. They'll show, <laughs> they'll make it look like you've done a lot more work. But yeah, they'll get like little things, like little tiny adverts that were in like the Penny Saver newspaper or whatever. And they count that as publicity and that'll be bam, that'll be what, Oh, look, he had coverage in the penny saver in July 2004. You know, hey, whatever works. Yeah, well, what, that's that's how it, that is how it works. Because if, if they manage to find another 50 of those, they just pad out your phone book of experience there, and you know, you got like a 140 page Bible that looks like you've been kicking ass. Let me ask you about a typical day because right now it's well, it, when we started talking, it's it's 11 a.m. on a Monday. You're a comedian. I got to ask you, what the hell are you doing awake at 11 a.m. on a Monday? Ha! <laughs> I don't know if that's true about comedians anymore. I mean, we can be lazy all day, but... But, uh, but you're awake while being lazy? Well, I mean, I think we can live... Like, you know, like, we don't... We don't feel pressure to get a lot done. I mean, I'm... But I, I do get up on time. I mean, I did write three years. I wrote for three years on a network TV show, and we didn't... I did. That was a quick, a quick way to start appreciating getting up at 8 a.m., I guess, because you knew you had to be somewhere and writing for something specific at 10 a.m. So, so if you don't get your ass out of bed at 8 a.m., listen to a little rock and roll, make a nice little breakfast, 
you know, before getting on your bike for for your 15 minute ride to the studio. Um, yeah. So I don't know. That's a, uh, you know, in the, with the invention of laptops as well, we can do a lot of work from bed too. So I don't know. What a you world people are, in the future. All you regular people out there are only just learning like what quarantine is like, but comedians live it all the time. Yeah. This is just fine for you, right? You used to work in at home. You're working on your own, working on the road. I hate to say it, but I am a little bit. I was, uh, I actually had, other than this tour, I'm supposed to be touring now in May, but March and April, I actually had a lot of home work to do. You know, it was, I hate to say it, but you know, things like taxes, I was writing two scripts, had to get my taxes done, and we were working on this album. We started working on this album when the quarantine hit, so I had all these things kind of keeping me busy anyway, but I, May has been different because I'm supposed to be, like I said, I'm supposed to be in the Philippines right now. I was going to do shows in Bali and Kuala Lumpur and then of course in Manila. Uh, and so that's, so now I'm trying to fill that in my head and I best, and you know, and, it, and it's, you know, it'll hopefully manifest itself on something good. If not, it'll, it'll become sleeping in. You're right. It'll become sleeping in. <laughs> I've noticed I'm sleeping and it's just, it's creeping. It's creeping. It's creeping. Yeah. I know. At the start of the quarantine, like I said, I was really busy and I had a rule for myself that there was no computers between 11 AM and 12 AM. But that was because I was actually getting up and starting doing emails and connecting with people from eight 30, you know, and then you get stuck into work and then you're socializing with people. You're doing all this stuff. And it was really beneficial for me to go, okay, it's 11 AM. No matter what I haven't achieved, it's not going to be any different by 12 so just shut everything off you know and what does that do for you i mean you're grabbing a light some lunch you're hitting a bike or something like yeah that. or during quarantine you know you're just doing a little workout you know or something just to get your mind off things and you'll and you do find that nothing's changed you know it's uh you know you get fomo when you're working i think that's the problem if you're networking with people and you're organizing things you're afraid to walk away from it, but it's hard to pound it into your brain that it won't be any different in an hour. You know, if they've messaged you, they'll be fine with not hearing from you for an hour and 20 minutes, whatever it takes to get that message. You'll be okay. Um, so it's important to remember that. It won't be a comedy emergency that yeah. needs to be attended to right now. It can get bad if you're on your butt all day staring at your computer. And you do, that's what, hey, I'm all for like, I'm all for the four day work week. Cause I, I bet, cause I bet you it extends to that. I bet you we as humans, we will accomplish just as much in a four day work week as we would in a five day work week. It's just that we've, uh, we've trained ourselves. Yeah. It's just something we've gotten used to. Yeah. Especially with the cell phones and you're never actually away from the office. You're never away from your work. You're always in touch. It's enough to make you crazy. Like, yeah. You just want to sh- literally shut the thing off, throw the thing out. I wouldn't be surprised too, if after all this, the quarantine experience that everybody's having, I wouldn't be surprised if some employers do realize that people are efficient from home. Um, you know, like if I ran a business or a company that required a lot of online, you know, whatever, whatever you define this clericalness of with your computer, if you gave all of your staff Wednesdays from home kind of thing, but they just had to be around their computer, their computer has to be on, they're on the clock technically, I bet you people would still be just as efficient, Yeah, you know? Oh, for sure there would be. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that don't operate well in that environment, but you know, they'll learn. 
Yeah, there's lots of people who don't work well in an office. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So, yeah, some crazy people would be even better. Yeah. They'd be even better if they only had to work from home. What kind of advice do you got to somebody who wants to get in the comedy game, wants to get up on stage and do their their first five? Well, you just you gotta you gotta do it. You gotta try to try to spend less less time working up to it and, and get on with it. Even if you bomb? Even if you bomb. Even if you bomb. I I still remember how I felt like in the time leading up to my first like real spot and i remember thinking well i'm about to find out i'm gonna find <laughs> out and you know if it's not if, if i'm not the guy then uh, then it's time to move on but that was that'd be the worst feeling that carrying around that feeling for years is is the worst and so if you are uh, if you want to try something if you've got it that eating away at the back of your head like for real it's like right there you better listen to that and do it because because if you suck at it, then you just go, okay, good. I can stop listening to that. Well, do you, do you think you really would have stopped if you had found out you sucked? Um, yeah, I imagine. I imagine if I felt, I imagine if I felt, uh, well, yeah, if it wasn't, for, I mean, you wouldn't enjoy it. If you sucked, you wouldn't, you know, you gotta, so, I mean, so it's kind of a loaded question in a while. Like if I, you know, if I knew that it was something that you could get good at, like that you could see, if you could see that you were going to get good at it, you know, then, then don't like quit. Of hope. Like, but if you're like, I am, I am not good. like, I do not ski anymore. And I, uh, and the reason why I don't go skiing is, uh, you know, it's not because I'm good at it. <laughs> There's no shot in hell. You're getting better. Yeah. I just like, I don't, I'll never enjoy this. I'll never be, I'll be stuck in the learning phase forever. I don't think, I don't think skiing is for me. So where can people find you? Uh, you can uh, on the internet, uh, JJ Whitehead and JJ White Snake on some social media. But if you plug my name in, I'm sure you'll be able to track me down and uh, have a listen to my new album it's coming out in like in a, in a little bit. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing how you make a living. Thanks, boss man. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. Making a Living Show is brought to you by me, but if you'd like it to be brought to you by you, then become a patron of the program at makingalivingshow.com. There's a button there that will take your money and give it to me. You can find me at robylevy.com. Thanks for listening.